started. Okay. Dylan, do you still want to do the intro? I think I'm the intro guy. Oh, you're always the intro guy. I think. I think that's my role. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Municipals, hosted by your very own Dylan Welch, our uh, snark in residence, Britt Bird, and our Washington correspondent uh, coming in hot from his living room or some other such room, David Many bedroom actually we're if you were wondering <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> we're uh we're produced by uh monsieur piches oui, oui. mon ami uh and yet again our uh, our audience is uh the loud and proud alexander cardinale oh man that was quite a round of applause yeah i think that's the first round of applause this uh, this municipal's podcast has ever had yeah. probably first and last first and last yeah uh, uh, you've you've worked me into a, a hole here because I want to object to being called the snark two episodes in a row now. But now if I object to being a snark with snark, you've got me. So I know. Well, it, I don't know if you noticed on episode two, but uh, when I when I said that uh, fairly immediately thereafter, you had some pretty snarky comments. So yeah, yeah. all right. <laughs> it's like you can't you can't make your own nickname. It's true. It's true. Um. So anyway, Ben Carson, which we didn't get to talk about right. last episode, uh, we'll do a little hot intro on yeah. all of our takes on, on Ben Carson as HUD secretary, uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about um, my uh, experience with NIMBY neighbors. You know, you know what? It's ben Carson as HUD secretary has fucking solved problems in Brooklyn. I tell you what, now we know what to do with the armories, fucking storing them with grain. Oh my god. <laughs> Goddamn pyramid. Turn it, turn it into a fucking pyramid. Look, we're gonna have such a solid contingency plan for the fucking plague. And and the the you know, when frogs run down from the sky, we're gonna be like, Oh, thank God we have Secretary Carson. We have all this fucking grain. Well right the thing the our... thing that I won't understand about this comment is if it's raining frogs, why do we need grain? Dylan Look, look, there are look six I know other we're not plagues, French. Okay? I know we're not French, but we could eat the frogs. No, there's six other plagues, okay? It's not just the frogs. The frogs are just Well, look, the most if we want to if we want to be really efficient in terms of our environmental friendliness, I'm not opposed to eating locusts. Bugs are very very how nutritionally have we advantageous. This far? <laughs> it's Ben Carson. <laughs> That's how we're straying this <laughs> far. This so for a, for so for some for some context for our our listeners. Um, you may recall at the end of episode two, I said our next episode would be about uh, immigration. Uh, Wait, what? Okay. Would be about immigration, deportation, and Trump, and how cities are Brit going to be. Britt wasn't paying attention. Classic. But uh, we had an impromptu idea for an episode, and we thought you guys deserved uh, two episodes a month. So here we are. I'm, I, I wanted to call it episode two and a half, but uh, was vetoed. So... Um, um I just want to point out as a quick aside too cuz this is just a great image uh looking at my window right now at the mailman across the street so the houses on my street are sort of up on a hill so there's like a whole bunch of stairs that you have to get up to get to the front door of each house and so instead of uh fucking with that this guy is like leapfrogging over everyone's fences and it's really incredible wow just like shout out to Oscar the mailman that's his actual name. I met him. The Damn, other day. you know your mailman. Yeah, no, that's he, awesome. He was like the first person I bumped into when we moved in. I felt a little bit too cool about it. Wow. Uh, 
so I probably need to be knocked down a peg there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, Britt, Dylan, uh, Ben Carson, what do we do? I mean, I, nothing. I, I honestly, I know that, that we promised to talk about him. I really don't know what to say because the man has no experience with public housing. I think it's just, it's just interesting that the, the logic here is so, so transparent where Trump's just like, oh, public housing. What does that mean to me? Oh, that means black people. Do I have a black friend? Oh, yeah, I guess, kind of. Yeah, Ben Carson, you do it. He it's, stopped reading at Urban. Yeah. And I was like, I know the guy. Yeah, so... Uh, there was a there was a myth going around for a while that Ben Carson lived in public housing himself, right? Right. And that's, just to show how deep that, that perception goes. Right. Um, but Ben Carson having shady details of his own biography is nothing new as well. So it's particularly easy to spin that. But, <laughs> right, I almost forgot about that. It, it's but, probably but, hard that to have that was the line a... that some of the, the Trump allies were pushing was like, oh, Ben Carson's the first HUD secretary to actually live in uh, private uh, in public housing. Like, So like, it uh, shows how out of touch uh, to, liberals are. To be fair to Ben Carson, it must be hard to have a good handle on your life story when you can yeah. barely keep your eyes open. But I, I, I'm less upset by the fact, like, if that were true, I'm not even that upset by it. Because the the only ever union member to be president of the United States is Ronald fucking Reagan. So like you know, it just oh doesn't the just, irony. This, this shit does just not matter. Like the the personality shit. Like I don't know. I think that's well, also true for Ben Carson being appointed. Like obviously, it's just the the most like caustic fucking racism that got him this like stupid appointment and it's just showing a total disrespect to everyone after but like, he said that he didn't want a, a position in the administration because right. he didn't feel qualified like props to ben carson actually for that one moment of humility yeah but you know it just like just pointing out that it's stupid isn't enough though we have no seats in congress to do anything about it so it's like well so to a certain point it might even be useful to just see how stupid the whole thing is because it's like well just pointing out it's stupid isn't doing any good for us we need to tell people why we need to care about yeah it. but also speaking of telling people why we need to care about it i mean <laughs> hud is actually going to have a lot of impact on how people live in the cities that we're we're going to be talking about on this podcast so well so maybe it's it'd be good to talk about like what the stakes are here because uh, you know some people hear housing and urban development and aren't sure what that means on a federal level. Um, I mean, it effectively, the biggest programs are obviously public housing, but funding for public housing, um, which is a couple billion between capital and um, the money that uh, goes into maintenance and operations, pales in comparison to stuff like housing vouchers, which is a lot, uh, a lot more invisible. Um, but we have, you know, millions of people on housing vouchers a big part of paul ryan's plan is to uh institute work requirements the same way you see for welfare for housing vouchers and possibly even public housing um so i'm sure carson might be instrumental in that um HUD is also stuff like the community development block grant which um you know varies from city to city but for some places uh is a huge part important part of the city budget um yeah, including it, disaster response actually goes exactly, through that as yeah. well. But it, it also be like we have to point out that funding for HUD programs has been going down and down and down for a long time now. And this is probably going to just be more of that same trend that has happened even under Democratic administrations. Um, you know, like the um, there was a big, what seemed like a big victory under Obama with the um, 
let me get this right affirmatively furthering fair housing rule oh yeah that um, that fits on a sign at a rally yeah no it's a really <laughs> really great marketing there but no effectively what the affh rule was um is saying that um hud actually used authority that it already had to say that um cities needed to do more to further fair housing laws besides just um, preventing overt housing discrimination. So that meant de facto segregation. That meant building more affordable housing in uh, affluent areas. It meant like some really ambitious things that housing advocates have been talking about for a long time. But because, so so the incentive there was that if HUD saw that a city wasn't doing stuff to affirmatively further fair housing, um, boy, that's a mouthful, then they would pull a lot of their funding like the Community Development Block Grant. but for so many cities now, HUD funding has been drying up slowly anyway. So HUD barely has leverage over a lot of cities. Yeah. And I know I'm forgetting where, but I think some cities in Long Island were like, fine, we're not gonna do that. We don't need your funding. Right. Um, so HUD has been sort of neutered a lot as it is. Yeah. So it'll be I, interesting to see what Carson does to that. I can only imagine that that would continue under um, Carson. But the thing that interests me in particular is this work requirement for the housing vouchers. Um, mm -hmm. that that's fascinating to me and I would need somebody um, who is on on the right side of the spectrum to explain the rationale of that to me because this is they hate the poor this, this well uh, uh, sure sure <laughs> I would be interested in seeing how they couch it is all I'm saying because how on earth are you going to find work if you don't have a goddamn house mm. yeah it, it sort of gets the mechanism backwards and that's actually yeah. like it, with um, with the provision of services for the homeless has actually been like a big win in the dialogue is housing first. Like we're realizing that yeah. giving someone housing before requiring them to um, try and improve themselves and get off of substances is really important because without housing, like everything else becomes infinitely more difficult. Yeah. I can, I can get the rationale maybe from like, oh, people shouldn't just get... I mean, here's, nothing, here's it, it misunderstands yeah. the entirety of what happens in, to someone in that yeah. position. But I mean, I think we need to respond that people sh should get quote unquote handouts for like they should get handouts for nothing because people shouldn't. People are going to die, man. It's gonna it's gonna be bad. Yeah. I'm just gonna say yeah. people are going I, to die. I I agree because I, I the thing that I think that has been missing this connects to what we were saying in the last episode about really making this specifically about people and not so much technocracy um, is uh, requirements for for assistance. Um, and being like, well, you know, you can't get free handouts. You should be working for what you earn. You know, it turns into privileges, what ought to be rights, what are actually human needs. I mean, when you think of the three essential human needs that one needs to survive and then thrive, like basic needs, it's food, it's water, it's shelter. Uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, well, we've already decided water doesn't count anymore, right? Oh, oh man. Damn, dude. I mean, I mean, got dark, but, but I mean, I mean, I mean all seriousness. Yes. In all seriousness, I mean, a, a lot of um, far right wing, um, or even I mean, mainstream ideas about welfare. Uh, you know, having requirements for um, you know looking for work um, to get food stamps, to get uh, housing vouchers and stuff like that. Um, if you take it through that prism of just like, how are you going to find a job if you don't have access to food? How are you going to find a job? If you don't have access to a house, how are you going to find a job? If you can't, uh, you know, have access to drinkable water, 
how are you going to find a job? And these are like basic things that we look down our noses at developing countries at. And we're like, well, of course they can't develop their economy. They don't have basic access to basic goods like shelter, food, water, etc. We have to treat our own people the same. The, the crazy thing I think is, um, and this I feel like applies to, to welfare programs and social programs more broadly, is that um, a lot, like some of the, the rationale is like, well, people shouldn't get stuff for free, which like Britt pointed out, like they, people need to sometimes. Yeah. Um, but then also like uh, that welfare should be a uh, step up on the ladder of opportunity. And those two things a lot of times are actually fundamentally in opposition to each other. Like if there are work requirements for uh, public housing or housing vouchers, uh, what's to prevent them from adding um, asset limits like they have with uh, temporary assistance for needy families where even if you have zero income, if you have savings over a certain amount, which is important uh, to help your family get ahead and get off of welfare, if you have those savings, you actually have to spend them before you can get yeah. uh, any assistance. Yeah. Like it, it's it's fundamentally backwards. And actually, like advocates are starting to call a spade a spade there. And instead of saying uh, asset limits, like those are savings penalties. Like yeah. we're yeah. we're penalizing people for being on welfare, which is then keeping them on those social programs. So it's just, it, I don't know. It's don't like a it very strange new version of serfdom. Mm. Oh, that's a hot take. I, I, mean, I don't know. I honestly, it's pretty similar. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like a similar version of the Michelle Alexander New Jim Crow thing. Yeah, you know. But so I mean, the Trump administration are psychopaths. I think it's yeah, it's it's dark. Are we I, I, are we complaining about NIMBYs though? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So okay. to transition so. into the main body of the topic today, again, um, Trump Trump will be the next episode, which I will I will uh, I will moderate. But today it is uh, it's David's day. So let's uh, let's complain oh, about NIMBY. Well, okay. So on to our main segment, um, which is also still talking about public housing, actually. Um, yeah, so yeah. to also narrate uh, things from my window. Um, so I just moved into a new house. This is uh, like only... Garrison Keillor kind of like out on the prairie. Oh, like, my God. Well, I actually, <laughs> when I was th- like, him talking about seeing things out his window, I was thinking like, oh, the Hitchcock movie. Oh, right. Okay. So sorry, David. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, <laughs> you see in rear uh, window, this is front window looking out of Urban <laughs> Street. Um, so I am directly across the street from this park uh, called Bruce Monroe Park. Um if any of our listeners, if any listeners want to find David, now you know. Yeah, you now you know where I live, more or less. Um, but it's been interesting because we just moved in here, um, and up and down our street on a whole bunch of the houses, um, you can see basically NIMBY signs, not in my backyard for the uninitiated. Um, uh, so what's happening here, and it's a, it's a complicated project, uh, but effectively... Um, they're building on part of this park. So half of it is going to remain a park, uh, and the other half is going to be uh, a pretty large building. Um, so all these signs are saying, mm. you know, stop towering development, uh, stop the towering giveaways, save our Bruce Monroe Park. Um, are they, it's an interesting... I'm curious, huh? are, they, are they billing it as infill development? Um, so, okay, so I'll give some background on the project. Um, so this is actually happening in tandem 
with the redevelopment of a public housing complex just a couple blocks north of here called Park Morton. Um, it was built in the 1960s. It's like that kind of 1960s public housing of like, I mean, they're not towers because it's DC, but towers and parks. Sure. Um, so it's it's desperately in need of of updates. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, like that's a really important context for this because essentially what the building on Bruce Monroe Park across the street from me is the build first part of that redevelopment. Um, so they're going to build on the park here first. Um, the building is going to be mostly affordable housing units, um, senior affordable housing units. It's going to have, um, you know, a couple thousand square feet of community space um, and public rooms and rec rooms. Um, and the people from Park Morton are going to be able to move in there, thereby staying in their neighborhood while that plot is being redeveloped. Okay. So this is actually like the culmination of, I feel like decades of advocacy of response to just the wholesale leveling of, um, of these public housing towers without any replacement right. for residents, without any consideration for who is living there. Right. I mean, in fact, um, didn't Robert Moses once say that like it wasn't his job to worry about where people went? No, Maybe, exactly. Yeah. And so. It, so this has been happening time and time again. Has happened in D.C. too. Um, so this is part of what's called the New Communities Initiative. Um, that, you know, there are some flaws, but but looking at it from somebody who's studying housing is actually like, honestly, some of the best that that we've done as far as incorporating the lessons of of so much pain and destruction of people's homes. So they're both projects, Park Morton and Bruce Monroe, are going to be mixed income communities, which we could have a whole episode on whether or not that's necessary. Um, but they're building first for people. They're incorporating a fair amount of community input. Um, so it, so the, the one critique of the project, um, and I, I feel like we're, I'm put in this position now where we actually had people knocking on our doors asking us to put the sign up uh, and I was trying to be non-confrontational about it. We would just say, like, yeah, we'll think about it, because I'm in favor of this project. The one critique I could say is that, yeah, it is a developer giveaway. Um, you know, there's a lot of incentives. It's going to be privately built, um, and it's no longer, I think it's no longer going to be the kind of straight public housing where you pay 30% of your income. It's the very complicated, like, 60% AMI, 30% AMI, which is actually, even though it's a lower amount than market rate, is still not necessarily affordable for people. Sure. So, but so I think it sounds extremely similar to stuff that we're having in New York too. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like, yes, it's a developer giveaway in some sense, but that's also for American cities in 2016. That's kind of the only game in town if you want to build affordable housing. Yeah. Um, right. Like we just don't build public housing anymore. Um, the funds are barely there, going back to HUD. Yeah. A lot of funds to build public housing came directly from the federal government. Um, so cities are having to do what they can with what they have, and a lot of that means leveraging private funds. Um, so I feel like I am so in favor of neighbors and people in D.C. Uh, organizing for a better way to build affordable housing, but I feel like that's actually not what this fight is about. Right. It's a – yeah. That makes sense. Um, Are you in a, a predominantly white neighborhood? Uh, no, it's actually, so we're in between the Columbia Heights and Parkview neighborhoods. 
um, which are, I think, actually like a third, a third, a third, as far as uh, white, Hispanic, black residents. That's quickly changing, so that may not, that's not the status quo by any means. Um, but no, like I, I live in a very diverse block, and I, I think part of the, it was, it was strange seeing the signs when we were moving in. I think part of it was that just people aren't aware of the full extent of the project uh-huh. and didn't want to say no to somebody who said they were their neighbor giving them a sign. Right. Um, and, you know, it is, it's quote unquote towering for DC. Um, y'all in New York would laugh at it because it's about nine stories, I think. Yeah. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. But on a row of two story townhouses, you know. People may not necessarily oh, it want might, it. It might aesthetically kind of stick out like a sore yeah. thumb. Okay. Well, this is that's interesting because this also reminds me of another argument of the pitfalls of of Jane Jacobs ism a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah. Is that that kind of the the demand for architectural context, which I think while everyone likes at some level, can also kind of lead to this nimbyism very easily. Yeah. Of being like, oh well, no, mm-hmm. it needs to look like this brownstone. It's like, well, in 2017, that brownstone cost five million dollars. So, like, if we're going to insist on architectural context, that can also, you know, it can be fodder for resisting development such as this. Yeah, I mean, it is a very modern-looking building. I that That's the thing, though, is I feel like, for me, this has highlighted a problem where I am in favor of this development. I have a couple of friends that are, but, like, it's all people that are very well-versed in the context and housing policy sure. and, like, what this is doing because like if if this building is defeated in the zoning commission the renovation of that public housing falls apart or they have to do it without replacing those units for the residents um and i think people aren't aware of that who's what is Um, the makeup of people who are are leading this nimby charge that's the thing too i'm i'm not entirely sure the guy that showed up at our door is actually not even from the neighborhood or one of them wasn't interesting Um, it, so it seemed like a very professionalized thing. Uh, called themselves like a, a public space advocate. Yeah. Um, Would which you... for additional context, the park right now could be a lot better. It actually was meant just as a temporary park. I think yeah. It was a parking lot or even like a dumping. Well, so that's before. that's fascinating because that at the that to me, if the, he's a public space advocate, that's the the I actually there's an anecdote from my 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 little hometown of maybe 20,000 people. That's fairly similar. Um, it's the clash of aesthetic with public need. So mm-hmm. um, in my actually uh, on the street that I grew up on, there's a very awkward space. Um, I mean, it's Massachusetts. The town is ancient, so the 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 planning of the streets. I feel like it's is, all awkward spaces, right? Yeah, no, exactly. The planning of the streets is just crazy. There's this awkward, like one and a half acre forest across the street from the house that I grew up in, and um, for a couple of years, actually, when I was, you know, maybe the mid-2000s there was a debate going on in town in a very New England fashion because we have a board of selectmen and they have meetings and you can come to the meetings and have a say in what they do Um, but the debate was um, do we build a small um, uh, cul-de-sac in that one and a half acre forest of public housing but there was also a very similar NIMBY pushback that was about aesthetic we want this forest in our backyards Um, Mm -hmm. even if it's one and a half acres um, and a lot of the protest was couched in um, the aesthetic. There is definitely a little bit of an undercurrent of like, um, well, 
you know, it's our community. Who is this going to bring into our community? Um, yeah. How is this going to affect the price of my house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Guys, so do I, you hear that like high pitched ring in your ears? Guys, unbearable. No. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. Oh. I thought that was uh, going to be a joke about I mean, music it, community it hearings. It absolutely was a dog whistle joke, but sorry. <laughs> it's hilarious. Oh, God. Uh, David, would you say that your neighborhood is starved for public space? Um, yes and no. There's definitely value of having a park here because um, this part of town is outside of the the L'Enfant planned core part of D.C. Mm. So there was never really any apportionment of public space um so you know i have to walk a fair bit to get to the the next closest park to here okay so like there definitely there should be a park here like i don't i don't i'm not going to dispute that i think and this is i feel like it's just such a hard sell for some of the neighbors here like i can understand um a mistrust but the park as is half the space is sort of barren and unused and i think you know, when you when you look at the most successful urban parks, they benefit from a density of residents right. nearby. So, they do you think that there's that a pos- do you think there's a possible argument that this building could activate the park into being basically better at even half the size than it is? Currently? I I would not doubt that at all because right now it's it's totally fenced off after hours. They they lock it. Oh yeah. Uh, do you think people would be amenable to this this argument at all, or do you think they kind of dug in i mean i i think it's hard because i feel like and this is why it's been interesting for me to talk about because i've never you know i've rolled my eyes at people opposing developments before but i've never been in a position where it is really directly affecting me Uh and i'll admit like i had a knee-jerk reaction when i saw the renderings of this large modern building that was going to be across the street from me that like oh that doesn't seem like it fits in the park's going to be smaller um and I did have to like suppress that feeling. So I think it gave me a better understanding of that. Right. Um, I think there's also a point to be made though that the public space here isn't going away, even though literally the park is going to be about half the size. But it, some of that space, public space, is just moving indoors. The building that's going to be built there is going to have, I think, it's like four thousand square feet of community space. Um... So you could argue that this is actually diversifying the amount of public amenities on the site. This has that has echoes of the infamous Columbia Morningside Heights gym project um, that that spouted the or, or sprung the protests in '68. Ah, mm. yes, uh, infamous. I mean, it actually <laughs> yeah, is. Funny. Fuck you, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> actually, a significant event. But um, damn. So, can you uh, prognosticate at all, or do you have any feeling on which way this might go? I think it's still gonna happen. Okay. Um, do you guys do you guys have like community boards? Is that where this would go down? So it, it passed the advisory neighborhood commission okay. ANC, which is like they don't have any direct legislative power, but they sort of advise and consent the city council. Okay, so it sounds sounds pretty similar to community boards up here, as I understand. Sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm not familiar with that. So yeah, the ANC passed it I think like at least twice actually. I think it actually just went before the zoning commission, and I didn't hear anything, so I assume that there weren't any huge hiccups. There's just so I, I feel like one of the biggest problems here is um, I feel like I'm in a position where I understand the context of this project, 
and and see why a lot of it is a really good thing. But I also understand if people aren't familiar with the public housing redevelopment, it's tied to um, the context for the development itself. I can understand why you'd be opposed to a giant building going right. up in your backyard. Is there going to be? Mixed... I don't know how to push past that. Yeah. Is it going to be mixed use commercial as well on the on the base floor? Uh, there might be. Uh, it is on a, a sort of. Uh, mixed-use street, so this is going to be fronting Got Georgia it. Avenue. Got so it, it wouldn't be out of place if it did that. Hmm. Well, I I just find the the parallels between um, this conversation about public housing and the conversation that we had last episode about um, the displacement of communities because of uh, you know the, the onset of deindustrialization and stuff like that is being incredibly mm -hmm. similar. That whole Robert Moses attitude of I'm not responsible for where people go. There's an there's a there's an element of that in NIMBYism, which is um, this doesn't fit the aesthetic of my neighborhood, and isn't there someplace else these people could go? Yeah, I mean. So how do you so, how do you go ahead? Sorry. There's also an echo of last episode in that I feel like contradictory because you know we were talking about how we need broader uh, movements to and better messaging beyond technocratic yeah. small tweak fixes. Uh, so. You know, and I feel like 80% of my street, uh, either uh, nominally or actually, is opposed to this development. Uh, and here I am, the like housing policy technocrat, saying like, no, 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 but there's all this like policy background and, right. and this and that, saying that it's actually okay. Right. There, there. Yeah, that's a good point. But I guess there are two facts that are popping up to me: is that um, one is that. I think this is the same for things up in New York about our mandatory inclusionary zoning discussions is that while I think I agree with you, David, that this is a uh, much better path of, of redevelopment for public housing, how many people is it at the end of the day? Is it 600? It's pretty large. Okay. But yeah. oh, it's, it's the sad, I think, fact of affairs for a lot of urbanism nowadays is that even these good, objectively good projects are making dents at best you know it's not going to mm -hmm. solve the housing crisis it'll maybe it'll maybe solve you know uh you know uh, do better to have integration in our neighborhoods which is important but i think that's that's also a tricky argument because i think i've seen convincing uh critiques recently um from the left kind of talking about this integration idea that if you, if you don't if you just push integration but only integration you don't link it to a larger program of, of redistribution, um, then you're kind of falling into this argument that like, oh, communities of color just need to be around white people more, and then mm -hmm. they'll do better. So I think that yeah, that's a that's a is a tough spot to stop at. I'm also reminded of that. You know, I imagine some of the NIMBYs are probably homeowners, right? And that often, uh, yeah, okay. So oftentimes, yeah, that'll do more it. market more market oriented people um, kind of really push home ownership and, and business ownership too as like kind of like the solution and the end goal. In fact, in fact that was like kind of the, the uh, you know, ideal of the free labor ideology right at the outset of the Civil War. Like, like anti-slavery Republicans were all about owning things and that was the idea. And for, for um, much of history, that's been effective. Owning land has is, is been effective at, at having a stake in your community except for communities of color for whom there are several times in history where, where communities of color throughout have owned property and it did not stop them from being dis displaced at all, ever. Mm -hmm. in, in basically every major American city, uh, 
the the interstate highways were driven through um, like lower middle class or middle class black neighborhoods, oftentimes with high ownership, and uh, in New York City as well, Central Park was built on a raised uh, middle class black homeownership mm. community. Um, so that's that's a little bit more tangential, but I guess I'm just I'm, I'm it's the whole idea of home ownership kind of is haunting me here as as uh, being inherently I think an unequal cudgel that that isn't a solution as well. I think I see it reflected in this conflict you're talking about. I, I will say the the structure of the opposition for this particular project um, is less aimed at the residents of the future building itself, okay. which I guess is good. It, you know, there's there's not a lot of coded language about renters or anything, because I think it's already a, a neighborhood that's quite tolerant of that. Like right. it's, okay. it's a it, mix of housing is. types yeah. here. Yeah. The, the public housing project that these folks would be coming or some of these folks would be coming from is not terribly far away from here okay um so it, it's less aimed at the people it, it strikes me as sort of a it's actually like kind of a progressive nimbyism like that okay. sort of san francisco style yeah um maintaining the history of a neighborhood through the like style of architecture but also like this this wedge that is driven through the discussion of even if this is affordable housing it's being constructed through this huge multi-million dollar developer handout. So I don't know. Fascinating. It's a difficult place to be in. Yeah. Well, I, do, and I, I hope that in a future episode we have an update on what ends up happening. Yeah. Um, it, if it all goes according to plan, it'll actually be done by the end of next year. Um, so I'm sure I'll have some Oh, updates. yeah. We can come back to it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Anyone have... Uh, a topic to close this out or are we uh, happy or with that do we have another transit review uh <laughs> as i'm sitting in the same place as i get my last review unfortunately not however af i think by the next time we record i will have returned to my hometown of houston texas um where i'm actually uh since i've uh been there last they have opened two new light rail um lines that i'm eager to check out they opened the first one in 2006 but thanks to the uh recalcitrance or, or intransience of perhaps the worst member of Congress um, in all the country, <laughs> one of the more uh, meaningful lines in he, that was planned and approved in a referendum way back in 2003 has not been built yet. What um, member of Congress is this? John Culberson, uh, okay. who is also Tom DeLay's right-hand man, um, but unfortunately has not been ousted like Tom DeLay. Um, so that that is one of the best corridors that remains unbuilt to this day. However, Houston has gone forth and built two more light rail uh, lines in addition to the one that was originally opened up in 2006. And they've also caught some headlines in some of our, you know, favorite little urbanist uh, publications for having a really successful, uh, bus yeah, bus redesign where their their ridership is up 3%, which is crazy 7%. for Houston. 7% now, which is, like, I mean, guys, Houston is like, I thought Los Angeles was supposed to be the boogeyman for car culture, but after I went to Los Angeles recently, I was like, no, man, it's Houston. That's crazy. So so ridership going up 7% is an increase of seven people? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But just the, the cultural move, I think, is, is huge. So I'm very much looking forward to, to both riding the bus and the new light rail and reporting back uh, right. on that. Consider that a teaser from our uh, Sunbelt correspondent, Rick Bird. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. yeah. I mean, and... Um, you know, going back home for me is interesting as well because compared to when I grew up, the whole the whole idea of people even hanging out downtown is so much larger, and the whole the whole 
it's a CBD new phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a different city every time I go back. Well, I think that'll be appropriate for next episode yeah. too, because Texas and uh, the various cities there will be featuring in in uh, in my subject on cities and yeah. deportation. No, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, Dallas, even though Dallas is the worst city in the Western Hemisphere, is doing good things in transit too. <laughs> so, yeah. No, yeah, not the Eastern. No, I yeah, I don't know. I I. You got some beef with uh, Calcutta? No, I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we really should avoid making enemies with particular cities in this. Uh, uh, I'll uh, I'll talk shit right. about like uh, I don't know. DC. <laughs> Bielfield in in Germany. Oh, good. Here we go. Look out! <laughs> look out, guys. Um, okay. All right. Do we? All right. Do you? I, do you guys have any recommended reading? I kind of like recommend. I like what I did episode with recommendations. Um, yeah. For for our listeners or for y'all or both? Just anyone. Rec- if you're talking well, to the preser- proverbial person, what would you recommend to read right now? The proverbial person? My <laughs> lovely colleagues just gifted me a copy of Evicted, which I haven't actually read yet, I'm embarrassed to say. So I'm excited to pour over that cool. um, this uh, this winter. Dylan, you got anything? Uh, I am currently reading uh, three books piecemeal. Um, one is a history of China, which I, I can elaborate on if people want, but I don't think that's why people come to this podcast if they come at all. Uh, another one, <laughs> another one is um, Dreams from My Father, which I had never read. Um, oldie. That's Obama's. Yeah, that's right. Obama's yeah. Uh, memoir of his early life. It's actually um, a, a, as um, a piece of uh, of work giving you perspective on the current moment. I think it's. Mm. very bittersweet um it also gives you a good idea of what you're working with when you're doing uh local urban development so uh i mean he worked as a community organizer for uh people uh in chicago i'm still i still laugh at when when he went on uh, between two ferns his uh chiron uh or Cryon was a community organizer underneath this name. So yeah, I love that community, community organizer. But it's so that's true. Great. I mean, that's I didn't, great though. I, I, mean, I didn't realize how how um, intensive that experience was yeah. and 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 uh, what that entailed. So I would I would recommend people give what that a read. Third one? Uh, the third one is um, I just started uh, the oral history of the Daily Show, which just came out. Uh, um, following uh, uh, the evolution of the Daily Show under the the, the guidance of John Stewart, um, they had a I've heard a, of him. Yeah, they had a they had a journalist come in and interview pretty much anybody even remotely related to the show, and uh, the journalist put together uh, the book in a way that is basically just a progression of um, clips of interviews that he did. Yeah, um, pretty fascinating. Um, so I uh, I bought a little essay anthology that I found on sale called City Squares. I think it's it's mostly uh, like uh, memoir nonfiction stuff, but focused, it's a, a collection of different uh, recollections of different city squares around the world. It's a light read. I've just been picking through it. It's fun. Um, and uh, I've also bought a recent book called uh, This Vast Southern Empire by Matt Carp, mm. who's a, a historian at Princeton that's really good. It's about um, how foreign policy in the United States basically from the very get-go is disproportionately dominated by the slaveholding class mm. um, and how uh, they very deliberately had a very pro-slavery attitude that shaped basically the deep, the early deep state in the U.S. Um, I'm also reminded, now that Christmas is coming around, 
I was reminded how I got uh, Toma Piketty's uh, capital last year. Oh, excuse me, and Toma. I, Toma. I, and I, he's French. Fuck you. I mean, uh, he, oh my god. I, I'm just reminded how I still haven't read it, so I'm just kind of ashamed <laughs> of that. And I wanna, I wanna celebrate the one year anniversary of me still not reading. Are you book. are you allowed to subscribe to Jacobin if you if you haven't read Toma Piketty? It's okay. It's okay if you uh, own it. And haven't read it yet. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. That's the that's the bench. Oh, the latest issue of Jacobin magazine is actually very good as well. I that. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, I okay, think that's well, uh yeah, I think that's where we we, we tie a ribbon on it. Yeah. Episode three. We did this one too. Shout out to our sponsor. Uh what was it? Trader Joe's frozen Pollock paneer. Yeah. Oh wow. Exactly. Nice. You got a Pollock before you paneer. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, This has been Three Awkward Dudes Talk About Urbanism. Uh, We'll see you next time.